The title of the talk is How to Avoid Being Unhappy, Vices That Undermine Friendship and Flourishing. As you can tell from the title, the talk has a practical aim. The aim is to help us learn how to avoid being unhappy. That may seem a bit unambitious. We shouldn't be satisfied with merely avoiding unhappiness. We won't achieve happiness by backing into it or by chance. We should aim for happiness. This talk serves this greater aim by targeting common obstacles to happiness. The focus of this talk will be obstacles to happiness called vices. The avoidance of vices helps us to avoid unhappiness and pursue happiness. Aristotle writes in the second book of his Nicomachean Ethics that the purpose of his study is to help his listeners or readers become good. And I hope this talk serves the same purpose. To begin, I'm going to say some things about happiness and unhappiness. I'll then say what a vice is and how it may undermine human flourishing with attention to its impact on friendship. I'll introduce a class of vices that St. Thomas Aquinas, following a long line of Christian reflection called the capital vices. I'll then turn to three specific capital vices that will receive the bulk of this talk's attention. The substantive philosophical content of what I'll say comes mainly from Aristotle and Aquinas. In particular, the central text underlying the bulk of this talk is Aquinas' disputed questions on evil. I've also benefited from scholars of Aquinas on vices, especially Robert Krushwitz and Rebecca Canondike de Young, whose short book I recommend called Glittering Vices, which has provided me with many insights into the vices and, into the, um, and has served my students well as we've studied them together. The Greek philosopher Aristotle claims in his Nicomachean Ethics that all human beings desire happiness and that they desire everything else for happiness' sake. My experience with students lends support uh, for his view. I typically start my ethics courses with a question about why students are in the class. One typical answer is because it's a required course. I ask them why they submit to this requirement, and they say that it's because they want a degree from the institution I'm at, the University of Mary. I ask why they want that. They say they want a job. I ask why they want a job. They say to support themselves in a family. I ask them why they want that. And at this point, they get a little puzzled. And then they begin to give answers like this. Um, I want a good life, or I want to be happy, or something to that effect. When I ask them why they want that, they have nothing further to say. And they just say, that's what I want. That's just it. That's what I want. Their pursuit of things is ordered ultimately to their happiness. Aristotle thinks that everyone agrees in general that happiness is living well or having a good life, but there's much disagreement about what happiness or having a good life consists in. Some hold it to be a life of pleasure and enjoyment, others a life in pursuit of wealth or power, and still others hold it to be a life in pursuit of honor or glory. While Aristotle thinks these things have a place in a good life, Aristotle's own view is that the correct answer to the question about human happiness depends on what makes for a good human life. And this depends on what constitutes and promotes the objective flourishing of human beings. He claims that human beings flourish when they perform their characteristic activity well. A characteristic activity of a thing is an, is an activity that characterizes the kind of thing it is. For example, playing the guitar is the characteristic activity of a guitar player. 
To play the guitar well is to flourish or to be uh, good as a guitar player. What is the characteristic activity of a human being? Aristotle claims that it's the activity of using our reason. We flourish as human beings when we use our reason well. Using our reason well includes understanding things, making good choices, and fostering reasonable emotional responses regarding the situations and people we encounter and the actions we pursue. Aristotle calls these activities in accordance or in accord with right reason, where right reason judges what conduces to human flourishing. Aristotle calls the habits of activities in accord with right reason virtues. A virtue is intellectual when it involves good habits of the intellect. A virtue is moral when it involves good habits of choosing and feeling. These habits are tendencies and a bit like skills. They make us able to do reasonable things reliably, easily, and with pleasure, or at least without pain. Aristotle claims that a good life is a life characterized by such virtuous activity, and that this will be done with friends. Friends are vital for our flourishing because we are social animals who need each other for good lives. Aristotle's basic notion of friendship is that it's a relationship characterized by mutual, good, mutual goodwill of which both parties are aware that is based on some likeness between them. The fullest and most complete kind of friends are those who care about each other for their own sake and not merely because they are pleasant or useful to us. Excuse me. The most complete um, kind of friends are those who care about the other for his or her own sake and not merely because the other is pleasant or useful to them. We say to these friends, I love you for you, not merely because I enjoy being with you or because our relationship is mutually beneficial, but I love you for you. I'll call these good friends. It's the good friend who will sacrifice his own pleasure or benefit for the sake of his friend. So if we wanted to summarize Aristotle's view of happiness or of living a good life, it's that happiness is a life of virtuous activity with good friends. Aquinas shares this view, but he thinks that virtuous activity with friends in this life alone cannot perfectly satisfy us. We will still have trouble and face disappointment and death here. There will always be some things lacking in even the best of lives here. If we're to be perfectly fulfilled, Aquinas says, we must enjoy eternal and perfect virtuous activity with friends where God is the first and best friend that we know and love forever. Here's a brief summary of what I've said. Happiness goes beyond pleasure or the mere satisfaction of desires, although it involves such things. It's living a life that befits and fulfills our nature as rational and social beings. The slogan for a happy life is virtuous activity with friends. For Aquinas, we can only have happiness imperfectly in this life, but we can have it perfectly in the next life through eternal friendship with God. Because this talk, or this is a talk focused on vice, I'm going to assume that something like Aristotle and Aquinas' view is correct. I'm, uh, I'm going to assume that acting reasonably and developing virtue is essential for happiness. I'm also going to assume that having good friendships is essential for happiness. Those are significant assumptions, and I don't claim to have argued for them. We can talk more of them in the Q&A or after the talk if you like. These assumptions have implications for unhappiness. 
I will be unhappy if I fail to use my reason well in my thoughts and actions, and if I fail to become the kind of person that can be a good friend. If I ignore using my reason well, I'll make poor choices and be subject to the psychological disintegration that follows from those poor choices over time. I'll experience conflicts between my mind and my desires. And if I always resolve these in favor of my desires without subjecting those desires to my reason's scrutiny, I'll weaken my judgment and make even poorer choices. I will be unhappy if I make myself incapable of being a good friend who can care about others for their own sake. If I only care about what's pleasant to me and useful for me, I'll fail to develop these friendships. Not only will this leave me lonely, but I'll miss out on the benefits of such friends, which include their help in knowing my strengths and weaknesses, their advice in times of difficult decision-making, their correction of me when I make bad choices, their encouragement of me to keep my focus on my goals, their sharing in my sorrows, and their rejoicing with me in my triumphs. I will miss out on all of the ways the flourishing of my life depends on friends. What has all of this to do with vice? Whereas virtues are good habits that conduce to human flourishing, vices are bad habits of thinking, choosing, and feeling that undermine human flourishing. Vices are formed by repeated bad choices, such as choosing something wrong, failing to do what is right, failing to correct some unreasonable emotional response, and so on. Vices make it easier for us to make bad choices and to respond poorly to situations, and so undermine our own good and the good of others. The vices I'll focus on involve patterns of emotional responses that are bad for us and others. I'll also focus on the ways they undermine friendship. If being happy requires friendship and vices are threats to friendship, vices are also then threats threats to being happy. What are capital vices? The word capital comes from the Latin caput, which means head. Head in this sense does not refer to the head of the body or the head of an organization, but instead to the head or source of something, such as a river. These vices are sources of other sins. In the realm of ethics, Aquinas uses the term sin to refer to defective voluntary acts. That is, free acts that fail to promote human flourishing. Rather than, to expe- rather than to an exclusively theological sense that some may associate with the word sin. Capital sins are typically sources of other sins by giving the reason why those other sins are committed. For example, if a greedy person lies in order to get money that's not due them, then the person's greed, which is his excessive desire for money, is the source of or the reason why he chose to lie. The lie, in this case, is called an offspring of greed. Aquinas identifies seven capital vices, vainglory, spiritual apathy, envy, wrath, greed, gluttony, and lust. He identifies these seven because they involve goods we naturally desire and common ways we respond to obstacles to our desires. I'll discuss three of these vices today. The first vice, vainglory, is a bad habit that involves an unreasonable pursuit of something we see as good. The second vice, spiritual apathy, or sloth, is a bad habit that involves an unreasonable withdrawal from something that is good for us. The third vice, envy, is a bad habit that involves an unreasonable withdrawal from something that's good for another person. I'll focus on the bad acts and feelings or emotions. I'm using the word feelings and emotions synonymously. 
um, to which these vices dispose us. By coming to understand these vices better, you'll come to know enemies to happiness and some ways to avoid them, which is a key step towards being happy. Okay. So the first vice I'll address is vain glory. What is it? Vain glory is a vain or unreasonable desire for one's own glory. What is glory? Glory is the manifestation or the revelation of one's goodness that leads to praise. The manifestation or revelation of one's goodness that leads to praise. The one who seeks glory seeks for his goodness to be made known, recognized, and praised, whether that's by many, few, or even just himself in the mirror. We have a natural desire to be known and loved that often underlies our desire for glory. Aquinas argues that the desire for glory can be good when it is desired instrumentally or as an instrumental good. An instrumental good is desired because it's useful for something else. And Aquinas holds that we should only desire glory when it's useful for our flourishing or the good of another. It should not be desired simply for its own sake or merely because it's pleasant. He says there are three good reasons to desire glory. There are when one's own glory is useful for first revealing God's glory. It's fitting for a person's goodness to reveal God's goodness because God is the primary cause or source of the person's goodness. In this case, the desire for glory is motivated by love for another, that God be known, his goodness be known. That is also true of the second good reason for desiring glory that Aquinas mentions. It's also good to desire glory when it serves a neighbor's good. Sometimes it is very good for another person to see one's own goodness. The piano teacher reveals her excellence at playing the piano so that her student can imitate her and become good at piano. The coach may perform some action well so that his players can see how to do it. You might have made, you might make known something good about yourself to another because you wish to encourage that person to persevere in seeking to become good in the same way as you. In these ways, you seek glory out of a love or goodwill for your neighbor, and that is good. The third good reason for, to, to desire glory is when it serves one's own good, or one's own good. We sometimes desire that our goodness be known and praised because it's useful for us to know we're on the right track, that we're doing well. Praise helps confirm us in the pursuit of our goals. It can be a source of encouragement to persist in the good things we're doing. For example, praise from your teacher on a paper helps you to make progress as a writer. Praise from your coach helps you to make progress as an athlete. In these examples, the persons want praise because the praise serves their own good and helps them to grow. These are the three ways we can rightly desire glory for Aquinas, but now let's look at ways we desire it wrongly. Vainglory is when we seek glory vainly. Aquinas calls vain things that are false, that easily pass away, or that fail to attain their due purpose. Accordingly, Aquinas distinguishes three ways of vainly seeking glory according to these three notions of the word vain. The first is to seek glory for something false. For example, I stretch the truth to make myself look better. I take credit for something good that's not my own work. I boast that I caught a fish this big, and the fish gets bigger every time I tell the tale. That's the first kind. 
The second kind of vainglory is to seek glory for something that easily passes away. For example, I seek glory for my clothes, my car, or physical appearance. I want you to think I'm a great person and worthy of praise because of something I have that's transitory or that easily passes away. The third kind of vainglory is to seek glory in a way that's not ordered to our proper end. Our proper end is happiness, true happiness, virtuous activity with friends. But in this third case, I desire that others know about my goodness, not for God's glory, nor for my neighbor's good, or even for my own good. I simply want the glory for its own sake, and I wrongly think having that glory will fulfill me and make me truly happy. Aquinas' example is of a person who desires that others recognize how knowledgeable he is simply for its own sake. But Aquinas claims that while knowledge is essential to human fulfillment, having others recognize one's knowledge is not. In the case, the person is unreasonably treated glory as the source of human happiness, but the praise of others is not what our fulfillment or happiness consists in, and so this desire is vain in the third sense and last sense. So what are some bad effects of these three kinds of vainglory? Taking glory in something false is seeking undeserved praise. It's a kind of hypocrisy. We're annoyed when people wear a mask and pretend to be better than they are. This hinders being a good friend because you're, being, you're giving a false image of yourself. It's hard to be friends with a phony. Once the phony is found out, he loses the trust of others and the praise he has received. Taking glory in what easily passes away is to seek more credit than what is deserved. We're annoyed when a person makes a big deal of herself because she has something shiny, new, or expensive, but which isn't something of enduring value. We recognize that there's a mismatch between the praise being sought and the thing that's the basis for the praise. Being rich or successful in a career doesn't alone make someone great and worthy of great praise. It's hard to be good friends with someone who's shallow, who cares too much about being highly praised for things that don't warrant that praise. Third, people who live, who live for praise are seeking to fulfill what's lacking in themselves with something unsuitable to the task. Glory does not fulfill us by itself. It won't fulfill our deepest longings to be known and loved. It won't make us happy. A person who lives for praise will be at the mercy of others' opinions. He would seek friendships for the praise his friends might give him. But this cannot be the basis for a truly good friendship, which requires love for the other for his own sake. An ultimate quest for glory will poison our motivations and goals, undermining friendship and flourishing. What are some offspring now of vainglory? Recall that offspring are defective acts or emotions that have as their source the capital vice or sin. These offspring are typical, but there could be many others. The first kind of offspring are acts by which we seek to make known our, goods, our goodness directly. We can do so by words and deeds. With words, we do so by boasting. The boaster announces, I got the highest grade in the class. See how great I am? We can also show our goodness through deeds, which Aquinas calls audacity for novelties. This would be an action I do that I think will surprise and impress people and make them praise me. YouTube is filled with videos of such acts. Finally, we can also seek praise for deeds we haven't done, which Aquinas calls hypocrisy. The hypocrite is one who seeks praise for good deeds he hasn't really performed. Those, yeah. And so those are the three offspring by which a person seeks praise directly. 
The second kind of offspring are acts by which we seek to make known our goodness indirectly by trying to show that we're not inferior to others. Here are three examples. I'm obstinate when I refuse to believe another person because I don't want to admit that I'm wrong and she is superior to me in her belief in the case. I'm contentious if I refuse to acknowledge when another person has won an argument or spoken more convincingly than me. Finally, I'm disobedient when I refuse to obey a proper authority because I don't want to admit the authority is my superior. When vainglorious, all of these are motivated by a desire to protect our image in the eyes of others or ourselves. How can we avoid vainglory or work against it? Rebecca de Young recommends two disciplines following the wisdom of the Christian monastic tradition. The first is to practice silence. One of the easiest ways to draw attention to ourselves is with words. If we check our speech, we can begin to recognize and evaluate our tendencies to draw attention to ourselves. Once we notice these tendencies, we can evaluate whether they are reasonable or not. If I practice silence, I may realize that my desire to share a story about my adventures after hearing another friend tell his story may come from a desire to one-up my friend or to at least try not to appear inferior to him. A concrete way to practice this is to go a whole week without speaking, texting, or posting anything about yourself. Of course, don't be antisocial. Answer questions whenever asked about yourself. Just don't offer the information. Trying this for a week will teach you about your tendencies to immoderate self-disclosure. The second remedy is to seek solitude and avoid an audience, even if that audience is yourself. Don't check yourself out in every mirror. Take a break from social media. By intentionally taking a break from such things, we can see whether our desire for praise of others, or for the praise of others, stems from good reasons or vain reasons. And in sum, silence and solitude are two remedies to vainglory. The next vice we'll look at is is spiritual apathy, which is also called sloth. Apathy means a lack of love or concern. Spiritual apathy involves a lack of love or concern for a spiritual good. Aquinas defines spiritual apathy as a habit of sadness or boredom at a spiritual and interior good. Let's unpack this definition. Spiritual and interior goods, in contrast with material goods, are not seen, tasted, or touched. They are goods such as knowledge, virtue, and friendship. You can see the effects of knowledge, virtue, and friendship, but you can't see the knowledge itself or the friendship itself. Spiritual goods, such as knowledge, virtue, and friendship, are crucial to human flourishing. Spiritual apathy is a disordered avoidance of and sadness at such goods due to a a lack of proper love for them. There can be as many sorts of spiritual there can be many sorts of spiritual apathy, but Aquinas focuses on one kind of apathy, apathy about love for God as the source of happiness. I'll focus my discussion on apathy about love for friends. The spiritually apathetic person is saddened by and withdraws from his love for a friend. He doesn't care enough for the friendship. But how can one be saddened by love of a friend? Don't such good things make us feel joy instead of sadness? A person saddened because the friendship love is seen as bad in some way. It's seen as an impediment to or getting in the way of something else desired. For example, when I'm apathetic about my love for a friend, it may be because I see that what love requires of me 
gets in the way of my own comfort or plans. The apathetic person is saddened because she thinks the friendship imposes a burden on her. For example, love for a spouse requires commitment and willingness to change. If she doesn't love her spouse enough, then that commitment and change will be burdensome and so bring a certain sadness or even resentment. The apathetic are saddened primarily due to a lack of love and not simply because they're averse to the work it requires. They fail to cultivate love as they ought. When Aquinas speaks of sadness, he has in mind more than just the emotion of sadness. Sadness, in his sense, also refers to a freely willed withdrawal from something. It manifests itself as a desire and choice to avoid what love requires. This choice to withdraw from love, or the choice not to foster the love, are choices for which I'm responsible and contribute to the emotions of sadness we've discussed. What are some of the bad effects of spiritual apathy? Well, spiritual apathy is unreasonable because I'm failing to do what love or duty requires and treating something less important as more important than it really is. For example, suppose my love for a friend requires sacrificing my comfort. Suppose I'm comfortable right now and doing something pleasant, but my friend calls and really needs my help. Suppose there isn't a good reason for me not to help, other than my continued desire to enjoy whatever is comfortable and pleasing to me. What's holding me back is that I don't want to sacrifice my comfort. I'm apathetic if I fail to love my friend by sacrificing my pleasure and comfort for his sake. The love for my friend was the greater spiritual good I was avoiding by refusing to help him. I was preferring the lesser good of my own comfort in the case. Even if I do help, spiritual apathy can make me really sluggish to do what love requires. Clearly, this is not conducive to my becoming a good friend. Although it's still better to help than to not. Aristotle says that humans cannot long stay in a state of sadness. Since apathy makes us sad, we will either seek to escape from that which makes us sad, or distract ourselves from thinking about it with something pleasant. These two responses are manifested by laziness and busyness. We usually associate spiritual apathy or sloth with laziness, with giving up in despair and doing nothing. You imagine the slow-moving sloth and the couch potato. But we can also seek to escape the source of our sadness by distracting ourselves with many activities. We can rush about doing many things and feel some measure of satisfaction at our supposed productivity. But this only avoids the issue we should face and increases our apathy. Good friendships persist because the friends are willing to face the hard things friendship requires. Our avoidance behaviors can make spiritual apathy a gateway vice to other vices like greed, gluttony, and lust. Why those vices? Because they all involve things we find very pleasant, money, food, and sex. And we seek pleasure as a remedy for sadness. If by my apathetic behavior I avoid spiritual goods like my friendship with God and others because they require that I make some sacrifice, and I instead seek pleasure to diminish my sadness, I'll find over time that even the pleasures I seek as an escape become diminished. This is because I'm using the pleasant thing to escape rather than simply enjoying it. For example, I enjoy reading a, a work of literature much more when I know I can responsibly read it rather than when I'm reading it to avoid doing something I know I ought to do instead. 
I want to make a qualification at this point. Sometimes there are actions that love requires that we set aside for the time because we don't have the energy or other resources needed to address them well. That's not apathy, that's just good sense. It's reasonable to wait for the right time to face difficult things. And some spiritual apathy is particularly damaging to friendships because if I avoid what love requires, I become resistant to making sacrifice and to changing which good friendships require. I can even become angry at those who call me to do good because that reminder renews my sadness. How can I avoid spiritual apathy or work against it? De Young, following a 4th century monk named Evagrius, and we could include the Benedictine tradition of monasticism, recommends practicing stabilitas loci, or stability of place. This means that I stay put. I don't try to escape. I face the issue that's causing my sadness, and I resolve it to the best of my ability. It's very easy today to escape. We have a highly mobile society and an almost infinite number of amusements available at our fingertips through our devices. Sometimes it's reasonable to move on, but we should resist doing so when we're really just running from what love calls us to do. This requires perseverance, which is another remedy for apathy. Evagrius writes that perseverance is the cure for apathy, along with the execution of all tasks with great attention. um, It's not enough to stay put. A person must stay the course and resolutely attend to the task that will foster the love that is lacking. The last vice we'll examine is envy. What is envy? Aquinas defines envy as sadness at another's good, insofar as the good of another is seen as an impediment to one's own excellence. Let's unpack this definition. Sadness here, like spiritual apathy, can refer to two different things. On the one hand, it can refer to a free, deliberate withdrawing from willing someone's good. On the other hand, sadness can refer to emotional distress. How can we be sad over another's good? In the case of envy, we perceive the truly good thing that causes sadness to be something bad. We are distressed when we perceive that someone else's getting some good thing diminishes our own excellence. Because we treat the other's good as something that takes away our own good, we treat what is good for them as bad for us. Hence, in envy, the other's good makes us sad. Consider an example. Suppose my friend gets a better grade than me on a test, and I feel saddened at her having gotten that grade. I begin to wish she hadn't got that grade, but instead that she'd got a grade lower than me. That's envy. What's going on? I'm upset because she got a higher grade than me. Perhaps her getting the grade makes me feel inferior to her. Perhaps I just really wanted to be the top of the class and she beat me to it. Either way, her higher score is the source of my distress, and so I begin to wish that she had never got that grade, even though it was good for her to do so. I may even begin to make excuses for why I didn't score higher, or attribute her good grade to luck, when it was really a result of her hard work. The genuine good of another, for example, her success, accomplishments, maturation, etc., contributes to her flourishing, and happiness, and if I love her, or at least have a basic goodwill toward her, I should rejoice in her good, or at least not be pained by it, and wish she didn't have it. But envy is contrary to this goodwill. 
When I envy another person, I withdraw from her good rather than willing it. I'm pained and distressed by her having the good and wish she didn't. Before unpacking the negative effects of this distress, it's worth distinguishing envy from something that is good, but that seems like envy. Suppose a friend works hard over the summer and saves up enough money to go on a trip. He posts his adventures on Facebook, and when I see them, I have a mixed reaction. On the one hand, I'm glad for him to have had the trip. But on the other, I also feel sad that I haven't been on such a trip. Is this envy? Perhaps not. Aquinas, following Aristotle, distinguishes envy from something that looks like it called zeal. Aquinas writes that zeal is when persons are saddened at the fact that they themselves do not have good things that their neighbor does. So it's a focus on them lacking the thing. The zealous person then seeks to imitate the other so that he can attain the good. So I may work hard to save up so that I can go on a trip like my friend. Zeal is different from envy, for the envious person is saddened at the fact that their neighbor has good things that they themselves do not have. The difference is subtle. Zeal is sadness that I lack a good another has without sadness that the other has it. In contrast, the envious can be glad if the other loses the good. They're sad that the other has it. Envy involves sadness of the others having the good itself. Zeal is consistent with loving the other and willing them to have the good. Envy is inconsistent with loving the other and wishes them not to have it. Okay. So what are some basic effects of envy? Basic goodwill or benevolence towards others requires that we will their good. It's a failure of benevolence to respond negatively to the real good of another. But that's exactly what happens in envy. For those who have played sports, think of when you were young and you were taught good sportsmanship. I recall at the end of matches going out to shake the hands of the opposing team and telling them, good game. The poor sport was the one who sulked and fumed over a loss and wouldn't shake the hands of the others on the other team. The poor sport refused to will the good of the other. The poor sport was in the grip of envy. Envy makes it harder to love the friend you envy and harder to be a good friend. It's difficult to be around people who are sources of sadness to us, and it's difficult to have a friendship that's marked by a need to be superior to your friend. Envy also begets offspring, such as gossip and detraction. The envious may attempt to tear down the envied, and show she's not as good as the others think. The envious gossips when he disparages the one he envies in a secret or disguised way. He tears them down openly by detraction. The envious does this because he thinks tearing down the other will remedy his sadness. Unfortunately, envy often doesn't stop there. It can degenerate into hatred for the other person. To hate the other is to wish for the other's misfortune absolutely. For example, envy may start in an athlete because someone else fairly beats him for a starting spot on the team. Hate results when he not only wishes that the other wouldn't have had the spot, but when he wishes that bad things would happen to the other person altogether. This leads the envier to exalt or rejoice at the other's adversity. Say if the other seems to get a serious injury or something really bad happens to him. Or to distress if the envied prospers, say if further, upon further examination by the doctor, um, it's revealed that the injury isn't very serious or if something really good happens to the other. The hateful person's worse than the envious because they're totally set against the other rather than just in one particular way.
How can I avoid envy or work against it? Envy stems from a comparative sense of self-value and self-esteem. To combat envy, we have to disconnect self-value and self-esteem from a winning comparison with others. A comparative sense of self-value is easy to come by in our culture. We see the material, that material rewards often go to the winners. And if we don't have a clear sense for what gives us value, we can take false consolation in the thought that at least we're better than the next guy. A more robust sense of self-value will depend on one's own intrinsic value stemming from one's nature, from the unique traits and gifts one has received, and from being loved by God. These don't compare, or these don't compare on winning comparisons with others. A second remedy is to pay attention to and cultivate concern for the goods we share with others rather than competitive goods. For example, when I share knowledge with someone, I don't lose any of that knowledge. I can't envy a person if her having a good doesn't diminish my having it too. A final remedy is to practice good zeal. Focus on what you can do to become better and try to love the one you envy and imitate him so that you can be worthy of the good he has. In conclusion, my goal for this talk was to help you to understand and to avoid the capital vices of vainglory, spiritual apathy and envy, and the unhappiness they produce. The mere avoidance of these vices is insufficient for happiness, but it's a step towards happiness. We've looked at some ways that impede or undermine human flourishing and hinder our ability to have good friendships. Understanding these vices, their bad effects on us, and some of their remedies will, if we make use of the knowledge and the aid of our friends, help us to avoid being unhappy and so remove obstacles to our pursuit of happiness. Thank you.